Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. RuPaul's Drag Race helped to popularize drag culture in America. But here in Nashville, drag culture has been strong for a while now. Bars like The Connection, The Jungle, and the Watch Your Coat and Hat Saloon were the go-tos for drag queens and kings. Last year, one of Nashville's drag icons, Bianca Page, had a street named after her. Yes, our town has a rich history with drag culture. Later this hour, we'll learn more from our city's longtime drag performers. But first, it's time for Add Us. Each week, we take time to read the comments so you don't have to. Yes, I'm encouraging you to literally at us on Twitter at This Is Nashville and on Instagram at This Is Nashville underscore WPLN. Joining me now with a look back at the past week is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon. Hey, Anna. Hey, Khalil. It's always good to be in the studio with you. Always great to have you. Okay, <laughs> so let's start with Tuesday's show. The episode was all about solar energy. And there was something from this episode we needed to at ourselves about, right, Anna? Yes. So, you know, we own up to our own mistakes, y'all. Mm-hmm. Tuesday, we failed to disclose that the organization one of our guests is a part of is actually connected to one of the world's largest oil companies. Wow. Okay. Matt Beasley is the chief commercial officer for Silicon Ranch, and here's how he described the company on Tuesday. We're Silicon Ranch. Uh, we we are a solar company, but Silicon Ranch is uh, is the name of the business. We we were founded uh, here in Nashville almost a dozen years ago by former governor and former Nashville mayor uh, Phil Bredesen and uh, his commissioner of economic community development Matt Kisber and his commissioner of revenue Reagan Farr. And we're a utility scale uh, solar uh, independent power producer. We uh, develop fund, own, operate, and maintain utility-scale solar plants. So that's uh, projects that, uh, that can power thousands of homes uh, with one facility. So after the show, WPLN environmental reporter Carolyn Eggers pointed out that Silicon Ranch is actually backed by Shell. According to Reuters, Shell owns about 45% of Silicon Ranch. Uh, Caroline actually called Shell's involvement with Silicon Ranch greenwashing. Okay. What is greenwashing? So greenwashing is basically a tactic that some companies use to deceive customers into believing that their products are a little bit more green and environmentally friendly. Mm -hmm. And Shell has definitely been accused of greenwashing in the past, both here in the United States and in Europe. A study done by researchers at two Japanese universities recently found that even though Shell promotes a message of sustainability and green energy, the company still heavily relies on fossil fuels. Hmm. I do want to say we had Carolyn Eggers hang out with us in the studio to listen for any greenwashing in that episode. And you know what? She didn't really hear any. So really, the only issue here was that we didn't disclose Silicon Ranch's connection to Shell. Okay, greenwashing. New term to add to the lexicon. Mm -hmm. Great. All right. So that's really good context. So we got a few tweets during that episode, including one from listener Nick Lindman. What did he have to say? So he shared some ideas on how our region can reduce emissions. He wrote, quote, the best path path forward to a low carbon future for Nashville would be to, as mentioned here, continue to invest in solar and other renewables and also petition TVA to build new modular nuclear power plants. 
Those plants should replace the Cumberland fossil plant as soon as possible. Hmm. I wonder how realistic that is. But, you know, if there's a will, there is a way. Mm -hmm. Okay, so moving away from clean energy, we had a lot of packed episodes last week, including one on composers. That was a great episode. And there was one piece we didn't have time to get to. Before the show, our producer, Magnolia McKay, reached out to a local composer, Julia Adolph. She had an amazing career that includes working with the Los Angeles Philharmonic and Boston Symphony Orchestra. Mm-hmm. So Julia lives here in Nashville, but, you know, she wasn't able to actually join us for that show. But she did share with us what it's like to be an artist navigating mental health. I think there is a great misconception that art needs to come from suffering and from a place of pain or mental anguish. I think this is a myth that artists subscribe to as well. And I know it's one that I used to really strongly believe in, and it actually prevented uh, it prevented me from really seeking the help that I needed. When I was 19, I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder and um, I was having panic attacks that basically sent me to the hospital. And at that time, I really um, started reckoning with this idea that you know I needed medication, I needed therapy, I needed to become healthier. And I was really afraid that um, working on my issues and taking Taking medication would somehow, well, first of all, that it would change how I thought and my and and the way that I create, but would it also that it would also take something away from my art somehow. What I've found, of course, through the past 13 years of really working on myself and growing healthier is that um, the more well I become and the healthier I become the the greater my artistic capacity because i am more true to my authentic self and i have a more um i have a a greater variety of experiences and emotions that i can tap into and that i can portray through my art mm-hmm. that you know that topic also came up on monday's interview with margot price who no longer believes that artists have to be in pain to make their best art Yeah, that wasn't intentional to connect those two episodes together, but it's always good to hear kind of like a constant theme, especially when we talk to artists. But anyways, during Monday's episode, um, Celia Gregory from our sister station, WNXP, also shared her own interview experience with Margot. She tweeted us saying, quote, I'll never forget getting a long chat with Miss Margot Price in the summer of 2020 around her then- new record that's how rumors get started while she cradled her then new baby girl oh that's so sweet um but uh celia went on to say a few days later miss margot price joined a crew of headcount org volunteers masked for a blm march downtown on july 4th it meant a lot that she shared time with and in community given how much she had going on personally and professionally you know she's a real one Mm -hmm. she is a real one all right looking ahead We got two shows next week. We need y'all's help on everybody. Yep. Thanksgiving is almost here, which Mm. means one of the busiest days in air travel. So it's only fitting that we're doing an episode, well, you know, about the Nashville airport. (laughs) And how could we talk about our airport without talking about the legendary B&A carpet? Okay, this is where we need listeners to really help us. Because the question we have is, why is that carpet and B&A so famous? So if you have strong feelings about that carpet, 
at the Nashville airport? Let us know by leaving a voicemail at thisisnashville.org. Seriously, we want to know. Okay, on a more serious note, we're doing a show next Tuesday that we could use your input for, too. We know that Tennessee has a pretty low voter turnout, and this midterm election was no exception. That's right. So next Tuesday, we're taking a closer look at our voting block. We want to better understand what's keeping so many Tennesseans from voting. um, If you could not vote in this midterm election or just chose not to vote, we actually want to hear from you. Mm. We we really want to understand why. So you can do this by filling out the form at thisisnashville.org. Thanks to our digital lead, Anna Gallegos-Cannon, for this roundup. Anna, we'll see you soon. Of course, and our listeners know where to find me online. Don't forget to add us on Twitter and Instagram, and let's keep the comments coming. Also, fill out our community survey and let us know what topics you want us to cover at thisisnashville.org. It is super easy and quick and helps us produce shows with your needs and interests in mind. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're turning to Nashville's drag scene with the local king and queen. Join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. The drag scene in our city has been vibrant for a really long time. While some of the old venues, like The Shoot and The Connection, are gone, drag shows are as popular and accessible as ever. Brunch, anyone? It's all about creating an energy for the crowd and making the impossible possible. And you know what? It's just a lot of fun. Even so, drag performers have endured harassment and targeting, but through all the changes they face, the show must go on. My next guests know all about that. Mac Huffington is the president of Nashville Pride, drag stage coordinator and a drag king pageant creator. She is joined by drag queen Veronica Electronica. Mac, Veronica, thanks for joining us and welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate the invite. Thank you so much for having us. So, you know, let, let's start off by learning how you both got into drag culture. Veronica. Oh, my gosh. I have been performing in drag. Um, this past August was 20 years. Wow. And uh, I got started by um, just being friends with a lot of local performers. And uh, when I first moved to Nashville in August of 2000, um, I had no intentions of doing drag. I was more into the... <laughs> the dancing and the going out to the club and just kind of just being myself. And I was a student at the time. But after meeting a lot of the local performers, I kind of started looking at drag as a theatrical outlet. Being from New York City, I've kind of grew up with theater in my veins. And I wanted to express my desires to be an actor and a performer. And there weren't as many opportunities to do that uh, in Nashville at the time for somebody of my age. And I really wasn't as well connected with the theater community. And I just saw drag as an opportunity to be on stage. And I wanted to, that's what I wanted to do. So I uh, reached out to some of my friends and said, Hey, what do you think about me doing drag? And of course it was an uphill battle because no drag queen ever wants there to be more competition. So, um, (laughs) but I did finally reach out to a very small group of friends that, uh, agreed to, to, you know, find some outfits for me, do my makeup and, um, and, and make it happen. I did my first show at The Connection on August 9th, 2002, on a Thursday with the amazing uh, Austria Andrews, amazing performer, um, 
And uh, and it kind of just all went from there and did my first big show a couple of months later at a venue called The Outer Limit, which was a straight club. Um, it used to be right across from the Nashville Zoo where the Aldi is now. There used to be, it was a, an old movie theater. Mm. And uh, they converted it into a nightclub. And all the different theaters were like different club rooms. It was an amazing venue. And I did a show with the uh, amazing fire goddess Raven from Atlanta, who's recently retired, but was a huge inspiration. And there was so many people there. It was my first big show. And I made a ton of money. And I was like, I got the bug. <laughs> I'm in it to win it. And uh did lots of pageants over the years and got to meet some amazing folks like my friends that are um, with us here in the in the show today. And I've just kind of been going nonstop for the last 20 years, and I'm so excited. What was it like the first time you went out in public in drag? Oh, my gosh. Well, the first time I went out in public was right around when I did that first show, and I, I really was kind of... I didn't want anybody to know it was me. I was kind of just wanted, I created this new character and I wanted her to um, have a little bit of a mystery about her. Um, but I remember um, kind of, we was walking around the club, not, you know, and being a new creation. And that was really exciting. But when I first started going out um, and kind of doing things, um, like in the community and stuff, I just, I found that was just exhilarating and, and just a lot of fun. And, um, you know, the, in society, a lot of people have soap boxes and kind of stand on them and, and stand up for things. But drag queens, we wear our soap boxes under our feet. Mm. Our six inch heels are our soap box. So I really kind of leaned into that pretty early on working with groups like the Tennessee Equality Project and Visibility Day at the Hill and visiting our local legislators um, and talking about, you know, we had the vote no on one. That was a, that was one of the first big movements that we talked about. Um, in my, you know, in when I was kind of coming up and that was in 04, 05 or so. And um, and working with folks like Randy Tarkington and Chris Sanders and making things happen and making sure that the community knew that we existed and that we had issues that we wanted to talk about. And mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to get into that as early as I could in my drag career. Mac, how about you? How'd you get started? Oh, man, I actually moved here from Chicago and uh, like Veronica, through friends, uh, discovered the LGBT community, discovered the club and just became so fascinated with the entertainment of, of drag queens. And at that time, it was also limited uh, drag kings. There was literally two uh, in Nashville. And, and being a, a cis female uh, loving women, I wanted to see more of the male impersonators. So I, I love the drag queens. They know I love them very much, but I, I wanted to see more male impersonators. And so that's how I ended up starting um, the Mr. Esquire pageant for the drag kings. but just like Veronica, I fell in love with drag and, and started going to the clubs and meeting the drag queens and, and working with them. Um, also wanted to be a part of the movement in Nashville. Uh, I joined Pride, or should I say Discover Pride existed at that time. It was, um, oh my God, I should be ashamed of myself. Our Pride encompass, encompasses Nashville was the original uh, name. And so I've been with Pride several, several years. Um, launch pad and, and the chamber. So yeah, drag, just like Veronica became, you know, my whole entire life, um, as well as entertaining, um, like I said, but as a cis uh, female, entertaining with, you know, the drag queens being a part of, you know, their mm -hmm. culture um, as well. And and some of, you know, my, my names in the community would be Rita Ross, Bianca Page. Bianca Page was actually uh, she emceed my pageant and used to perform 
uh, in my pageant, uh, Nicole Ellington Dupree. We're going to uh, talk about this. we're going to talk about <laughs> Bianca Page a little bit later. Uh, but tell okay, awesome. tell me more about Mr. Esquire, your pageant for Drag okay. Kings. What are the elements of that show? Oh, Mr. Esquire. Um, it's, it's pretty much like a pageant that you see on TV. There's presentation. Um, there is a formal wear. Um, and Mr. Esquire formal wear for a long time had been uh, athletic wear because I wanted to be somewhat different than some of the other pageants out there. Um, and so um, it was kind of like sports wear. And then we had formal wear and talent. Um, and so, you know, we've done that now for about 26 years we've traveled all 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 over performing and and again when we first started drag kings weren't very uh well known we wanted to be a part of chicago pride and so i sent them a picture of my drag kings and i waited 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 and finally i called and the guy says yeah i've been waiting on a picture of you know your boys he said and i said those are my girls those are my boys and he was like mm. oh we thought they were boys he says, y'all are booked. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, why aren't drag kings as popular as drag queens? Oh, the drag queen world has just been so dominated uh, for such, you know, a very long time. And I just think that there's still areas that aren't familiar, you know, with the kings um, as much. And, and just like the drag queens, it's hard. Um, you know, to get in that persona and 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 go out, you know, in public and and you know, um, face their their families and and things like that. So there's there's difficulties on the male impersonator side, just like um, the drag queens. But I can tell you, over the years, uh, a lot more have come out and performed. There's far more pageants than it used to be. At one time, we were the only pageant. Um, not the I won't say the only pageant, but there was only a couple of pageants at that time period. So uh, it's grown and it's also grown to a national pageant. I've also owned US of A pageants for the male impersonators and for the cis mm -hmm. uh, female. So it's also become, you know, more popular in the last few years. So Veronica, let me ask, what does drag mean to you? Oh my gosh, how long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> we got to one. What, what does drag mean to me? It means freedom of expression. It means freedom to celebrate who we are and who we want to be and to celebrate who we've fought, who, what we fought for to become those things. Um, so that's the simple, easy answer to that question, but it's so many things and it changes from day to day. Uh, with uh, the political climate in this country, um, I, I don't take anything for granted anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, even basic civil liberties, um, it's hard to take for granted, um, especially in, uh, in, the, in the culture that we're in and unfortunately in the state that we're in right now and, and the battle that we're about to literally on where we're, ga we're at the stage where we're gathering our armies to figure out how we are going to combat this ridiculous bill that's been proposed in the state assembly. We're going to get to that. In I one, know, in, I know. In one second. But, you know, it really seems like the drag scene is popping off all over the city. 
What's going on with the scene right now? Where is it at outside of these pressures and difficulties you're facing? Oh, my gosh. There is drag everywhere, which is amazing. When I started doing shows in downtown Nashville several years ago, I was hosting um, the Music City Mail Review with my friend Sean, and it was 300 bachelorettes watching a, a male review show. Um mm. And I was the drag queen hostess for the room. And that was on Broadway, the uh, Second Avenue, um, underneath um uh the uh, the jazz what was that? The jazz place. Um the anyway, it was in the basement of the of the of one of the clubs on Second Avenue. And uh we would fill the show up twice a day on Saturday, and then I would do a show of uh celebrity drag impersonators across the street at Big Shots upstairs, which they still do the show on Saturday. Um, and, um, that was before a lot of other shows were, other drag shows were going on downtown Broadway. But now you've got uh, the Electric Jane and you've got the, all these different brewery companies and and they have drag brunches and drag shows. And I mean, there's even been a drag show at the Taco Bell on second Avenue. Wow. You know what I mean? So it's just everywhere. And I think it's very exciting. It's like running for the border in high heels. (laughs) I've done it. So, but, um, I think it's very exciting and, 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 and drag and pop culture is just everywhere. I mean, it's on social media. it's on, uh, it's on television. It's in your movies. It's everywhere. And me, and then that's not a new thing. I mean, drag as a loose term, you know, cross dressing or whatever. Uh, I mean, you have like Tootsie and Mrs. Doubtfire and Priscilla Queen of the Desert and Tu Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. All of that stuff. So the idea of drag um, and being in pop culture is not new. It's been around for a long time, and it, I think that it's not a new. It's not a new sensation, but it's become more it's been become more accessible to the general public and not just in LGBT venues. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking this hour about the drag scene in our city with performers Mac Huffington and Veronica Electronica. So, Mac, where are some of your favorite drag spots? Where are they and what are they? Well, a lot. Of, well, I would definitely say uh, play dance bar. Um, but just like Veronica said, I mean, we go to Dixon Cider and we go to Anzi Blue and, uh, you know, we we go to City Winery and we uh, go to, um, you know, some like she said, uh, th- it's, there's drag everywhere. We we go to Cookville. We go to Clarksville. We we go to Smyrna and Murfreesboro. Like you said, the different brunches and, and different uh, shows. So we're, we're able to go several places that we never could go um, before. And and I do want to say there has been also an addition of the male impersonators in, you know, some of these shows as well, because they, they have brought their game uh, to the level of the drag queens. And so they, they are becoming, again, more and more popular and being a part of brunches and more part of different shows and, and things of that nature as well. Call it a coincidence. But today just so happens to be RuPaul's birthday. Hmm. And, you know, shows like RuPaul's Drag Race have made drag culture very visible and popular globally. So, Mac, what do you think the chances are of seeing a drag king show on television? Oh, I'm very hopeful and would love to be a part. (laughs) (laughs) Her inbox is open, (laughs) y'all. Let's hope the power. Spread the word. Spread the word. Dragula has had a drag king on the on their competition. Thank you. Thank you. And he won. I think he won. Thank you. He did. Yeah, amazing entertainer. Yeah. 
you know, there's been a few local drag queens to make it big on RuPaul's performers like Eureka O'Hara, Cameron Michaels, and Georges have all seen stardom yeah. after appearing on the show. Veronica, how does it make you feel to see people from the region represent Nashville's drag culture on a global scale? Well, long before Drag Race, Nashville and Tennessee and the Southeast have had a huge place in national um, drag um, representation. Um, but I think it's wonderful that, you know, that RuPaul um, created this show and that um, local folks from Tennessee and, and here in Nashville. And we, we left out my friend Jaden Dior Fierce in that little in that little clip right there. So we're going to give her some props, too, because I, I love her to death. Props, yes. Um, but I think that uh, I think that's great. I think that's wonderful. But uh, I, I also want to make sure that um, entertainers like Mr. Charlie Brown um, who um, originated and, and started a lot of drag here in Nashville um, back when you had to be introduced as a male or else it would be violating the male and imp uh, female impersonation laws back decades ago. Mm. Um, and you had to be wearing articles of male clothing uh, in order to, to not be arrested. But I think that representation out of Nashville and Tennessee in general, Lady Bunny, is from uh, the Chattanooga area. So there, there's so many amazing drag and, and queer entertainers that came out of this state that um, you have to look at it as a broad uh, as a broad spectrum. But I'm very proud of all of the people that have made it um, to to stardom that 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 call Nashville and call Tennessee home. Now, in addition to more traditional drag shows, you've done drag story time as well. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Oh my! Drag story time is uh, is an amazing um, it's an amazing thing. I, I like to think of myself as an educator. I love to teach, um, and doing story time, you get to mix um, entertainment, education, and uh, and family values kind of all mixed in together. And I did uh, drag story time at National Pride uh, before the pandemic. And we did it as an interactive style, and it was amazing. We did. I kind of rewrote um, Peter Pan so we can kind of do it interactively. So I was the I narrated the the story of Peter Pan, and all the kids got to dress up in little costumes. They got to choose their tribe. You know, there were mm. going to be fairies, there were going to be mermaids, there were going to be pirates, there were going to be the lost kids or whatever. And a, a dad and his little baby wound up being Captain Hook. Mm -hmm. And then we had somebody, you know, I think a little girl played Peter Pan. And, and as I narrated, you know, uh, all the pirates ran over to Mermaid Lagoon and they, they go, D -d 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 -d, all ran over this way. And, and we kind of just made it very interactive. And of course, that was pre-COVID. And uh, it's so much fun to, to get their imaginations going. There's an amazing entertainer named Jordan Kennedy. I believe she's semi-retired now, but her tagline was the imagination in motion. And to me, that is like the, the, the fastest way to describe drag is imagination in motion. If you can imagine it, you can see it and you can be it on stage in a drag performance, whether you're a drag king or queen or gender neutral uh, performer. And I think that's amazing. Talking about imagination or maybe lack thereof, recently Senate Majority Leader Jack Johnson, a Republican from Franklin, introduced a bill that would criminalize, quote, adult cabaret performances, end quote, in public or any place where they can be viewed by a minor. Mm -hmm. I want to get answers from both of you. But Mac, you know, how did you react when you first heard about the bill? D devastated. My, I mean, my heart sunk. Uh, you know, again, this is entertainment. This is this is life. This is a part of who we are on the inside. So the thought that someone would take that away is it, unfair, it's it's harmful, it's hurtful. 
um, to to myself, to the community, uh, you know, to to all the performers. Like you said, they're showing their inner selves. They're being who their authentic self and who they want to be. So to to, to criminalize that, to take that away from someone, is is more devastating than than you can ever think. Veronica, why do you think people get so bent bent out of shape when it comes to drag performances? They're scared. Mm. Yeah. That has to be the answer, right? Fear. Yeah. I don't I I don't know why they're so scared, but um it just seems that the conservative movement in this country is scared of progress. It's scared of yes. new ideas and it's scared that people will learn that quote unquote alternative lifestyles are not evil and mm. are not predatory. Um, and for some reason, the conservative movement is obsessed with genitalia and clothing that covers it. <laughs> I don't understand. And I know as the engineer kind of rolls their eyes as I say that, but it's true. I don't understand why the conservative movement is so obsessed with, uh, with, with what somebody looks like without their clothes on and, and, and how they can equivocate a drag performance. I could be lip syncing to the song with the wheels on the bus go round and round. And they will say that it is a perversion and that it is indoctrinating children, but they will allow their kids to go to a, a, a major league sports game and watch a, a, a Titans cheerleader in booty shorts and a crop top j- jump and gyrate all over that stage in front of thousands of kids and not say the same thing. Mm. Mac, what do you want people to know about drag culture? I want people to know, I, I think kind of like what Veronica's saying, that there's nothing to fear. We are human beings. We are people just like everyone else. We want to love, we want to share, we want to entertain, we want to be ourselves and we want to be accepted. And you know, and we don't want the drama <laughs> that you know is, is coming along with it. It's not necessary. It's, we are human beings just trying to live our lives like everybody else. Mac Huffington is president of Nashville Pride. Thanks to you so much, Mac, for being with us today. Thank you so much. We appreciate the invite. Veronica, Veronica Electronica, stick with us through the break. When we come back, we'll travel back in time and take a look at the history of drag in our city. Join the conversation. Are you a drag queen or drag king? What's your signature style? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been talking this hour about drag culture in our city. It's a vibrant scene, and it's been thriving for quite a while now. So let's take a closer look at some of that history and the impact drag culture has had on Nashville. My next guest has been studying this. Philip Stefeli Sewell is an adjunct professor in history and PhD student at pub- of public history at Middle Tennessee State University. He's been conducting oral interviews for the project Nashville Queer History. Philip, thanks for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having me. All right, so what do we know about the earliest drag performances in Nashville? Yeah, um, I mean, newspaper accounts date drag back all the way to the 1800s. I Come mean, out. How far back? The 1800s, okay. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's been here for centuries at this point. Um, and, 
you find it most mostly in carnivals and theaters. It was a performance that everybody would go to, it, it, a family function, even in the 1800s. Um, and at first, it wasn't really associated with the LGBTQ community. Um, it's much later on that in around the 60s or 70s that it starts becoming associated with that. So how did the scene develop here? Yeah. Um, so obviously, we know that Music City gets its name from um, its correlation with being a music city. Um, but what happens over time is that these performers, um, they start going into these clubs as a result of ordinances that the city are passing. Um, and about, I would say, August of 1966, the city launches one of its first attacks on female impersonators. Um, and they make it illegal for a person to wear clothes in public opposite of the birth of their gender, but specifically male to female. Mm. So, um, so it was an attack on it. And they use the same language that we're seeing today in these new bills um, it's for the safety of children. Um, this kind of forced um, drag performers inside. And over time, what happens is um, while they're in these venues, um, in these safe havens, they become more associated with the LGBTQ community because a lot of these early pioneers in drag were transgender themselves and at the time just didn't know it. Mm. So we kind of come full circle in a way. Oh, most definitely. Where were some of these early clubs located? Yeah, they're in a popular locations today. I mean, one of the most earliest clubs um, we have is the Watch Your Coat and Hat Saloon, and that was on 2nd Avenue. Um, it was started by uh, Jerry Peak, and most notably, that is where you actually have Miss Gay America. Um, and that's a nationally renowned pageant still in existence today. Um, and they run it, and the first winner of that was um, Norma Christie. Um, and then the first alternative, as they call it, was Charlie Brown, um, yeah. who is nationally renowned and still operating in uh, Atlanta. Mm -hmm. I'd like to introduce my next guest. Vanessa Lee is a longtime drag queen who worked at The Jungle, one of Nashville's early LGBTQ bars. Vanessa, welcome hello. to This Is Nashville. Hello, hello. So how did you first get into drag? Um, as he discussed being transgender and things, I um, became transgender in 1982. I'm from Franklin, Kentucky. Um, there was no one... Um, that represented transgender people in Kentucky. And, of course, that made me feel ostracized and alone. So it made me want to study things like Tula, which her real name was Caroline Crossy. And she wrote a book, and she actually married a prince named Prince Andrew and things like that. But I came to Nashville in 1990. And like you said, one of the first bars that were here in Nashville was The Jungle. Um, also, Victor Victorious was on 8th Avenue. Um, another bar that was here was The Cabaret. It was on Hayes Street. There, were, there was a lot of representation here, and it made me feel more comfortable. You spoke of what it meant to some people. To me, it meant self-preservation. Because, like I said, there was nobody like me until I came to Nashville. I understand that performing drag has really helped you with your mental health, right? Oh, absolutely. How did you find relief in performing? Through the fandom. Mm. When, when you feel so alone, and then all of a sudden when you get on stage and people tell you, oh, you're so great, you're so beautiful, things like that, that really changes your self-esteem all the way around. Mm. 
How important were those spaces that you performed at? How important were they to you? Oh, absolutely. It, I mean, I would not be here today had it not been for those. Um, some of the owners were Al Pedro, Pat Blaylock, Jim McCullough. Um, I could I could just go on and on about how how it really it really saved my life. Would you consider that a golden age here in Nashville at that time? Well, it's been around for so long and it and I would because right now like like you all have discussed how dangerous it is to be in drag. You've got people actually preying on people now. Back then it it really the only people that preyed on you then were the police. Mm. You know, I went to jail in 1991 here in Metro because at the jungle, the jungle was kind of considered a dive bar, you might say. Okay. You know, it wasn't play. It wasn't, you know, upscale dinner, dinner theater or anything like that. But we would go and we would have a great time inside and outside. And there were a couple of people fighting outside and I wasn't involved in that, but I felt like I needed to defend the people. And when I did, the police decided because I wasn't wearing an article of men's clothing, that made me go to jail. Mm -hmm. I, I want to step to a second about what it was like to perform during this golden age. Okay. Mm -hmm. What was that like? What was special about that time when everybody was performing and really you yourself were honing your craft? The most special thing was the sisterhood. Mm -hmm. I mean, now it's kind of one, one for all and all for one. But back then, your the sisterhood was so incredible because the more we all got along, the better the shows were. Mm -hmm. It wasn't so much competition. There was comp. Don't get me wrong. There was competition between bar to bar. Okay. But not between the queens that worked together in the bar. Okay. Now, veteran drag queen Veronica Electronic is still with us. Talk about that. Talk about that sense of camaraderie it was like between performers when you were starting out. Oh, it was so special. And so uh, I'm, a, I'm a little younger than my, my, my sister Vanessa sitting next to me here. <laughs> but I can attest to um, it's generational and it's so much fun. I remember performing uh, at the Jungle with Miss uh -huh. Vanessa and Saber and Cookie and uh, Taylor Scott and all these amazing folks. And I was I was the young kid on the block. You right. know, my sister Talia Sanchez and yes. myself and all sorts of other really fun entertainers. And I didn't care which bar I went to. I just wanted to work. I just right. wanted to perform. So I would be at the Jungle. I would be at the Shoot. I would be at the Connection. I would be at the Cabaret. And we kind of just went wherever they had an open stage. Me and my sisters of my little generation, we went and we got taken under the wings of people like Vanessa. Mm -hmm. I did a pageant, Miss uh, Miss um, Bianca's pageant, not Music City. Was it Music City Newcomer? It was. Yes. And I said, Vanessa, I need your help. Uh, and she helped me with a, a headdress to wear. And then I did another pageant and I, I wanted to do Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. and I needed a, an, an evening gown. And Vanessa let me borrow this gorgeous full-length bugle beaded gown and I wound up rolling down the stairs at the connection and Mar Carmela Marcella Garcia was the hostess and there were bugle beads flying everywhere and Trinity Monroe was in the balcony as Lucy and it was amazing I, I actually tied for best talent with Dominique Chappelle the French doll out of Louisville Kentucky and but it was the ability to talk with folks like Vanessa and other veteran entertainers that 
that kind of took you under their wing. And we have what's called, you know, drag mother, drag daughter, drag sisters. And um, it, it's just amazing when somebody says, hey, you need some help. Let me help you out. And they may not say, oh, I'm going to be your drag mom now or or, or I'm going to be your drag sister. But you felt it and you felt like they wanted the best for you. And uh, a lot of the drag entertainers don't have that as much these days because their drag mother is YouTube. Right, or their drag right. mother is RuPaul, or their drag mother is, you know, some drag celebrity that they may never even meet. But um, 20 years ago, if you didn't have a drag, quote unquote, mother or a bunch of sisters, you would never get off the ground. You're right. But it was places like these clubs that we talked about and also um, um, businesses like Performance Studios um, that, you know, that had all the materials that we needed mm-hmm. in order to get in drag makeup and tights and, 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 and lashes and hair and all of that stuff. And you had uh, entertainers like China who um, were professionals in the craft of putting people in drag and making hip padding and making all those other things that it was about mm-hmm. the, the sisterhood and the camaraderie. Right. And that was a huge part of it. And I love the fact that I did that. And the new entertainers that are coming up now and they they work with me and I try and, and give them a little bit of that history and I show them videos and I show them literal newspaper clippings with my picture in it and all the clubs that used to be and uh, the the Drag Boy uh, uh, the review, it was a, a pageant that happened. Uh, I love showing history, yes. All right. All of that. So we can't talk about Drag in Nashville without talking about the late, great Bianca Page. Mm-hmm. Sure. Here she is competing for National Entertainer of the Year in 1996 talking about how she got into the scene in Nashville. I moved to Nashville to audition for Hockerland, made the first three callbacks, and got that dreaded letter that said, don't call us, we'll call you. So I then decided I would uh, find out what the gay entertainment was all about. I've been in this business for 10 years, and I have no regrets. Many ups, many downs, but no regrets. And because of society and boyfriends and friends in general, I always thought that this was something I needed to give up. what I want to be when I grow up. But thank God in the past year, I know now that I am what I want to be when I grow up. I have a job that I love, an acting job, something I wanted since I was a kid because I love the applause. I love being on theater and expressing myself on stage. And uh, it also makes me very proud that it allows me to do a lot for my community because the talent I have here on stage is God's gift to me. But how I express that talent is my gift to God and my community. V, tell me a little bit more about it. You know, speaking of Bianca, one of the things that, that I cherish about her is in her lifetime, she raised close to a million dollars for Nashville Cares and for the AIDS progress. Just knowing her and being in her space, you felt, you just felt the love come from her. When I moved to Nashville, she was one of the first ones who um, worked with me at the warehouse. I worked with her, Rita Ross, Diana Hutton, Dana Alexander, Stephanie Wells, people like those. Those girls, Vanessa Del Rio, she was another one. Um, they took me under their wing and and they showed me. They're like, "Oh, you're you're the sissy SpaceX of us all." Because back then I was mm-hmm. transgender. I wear, I wore CoverGirl things like that, which you know they say CoverGirl doesn't cover boy <laughs> things like that. I didn't know those things. But when I moved to Nashville, they were like, okay, like Veronica said, here, try this, try that. 
And then within months, I was in, like Veronica said, one of my first pageants. I had four titles here in Nashville within one year. Wow. And I, I, I've been hooked ever since. Philip, tell us a little bit more about Bianca Page's legacy. Yeah, Bianca is one of the most moving people I think you're ever going to learn about in your life. Um, conducting these oral interviews, she always gets brought up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she Mark was um, Mark Middleton was um, Bianca. Mark um, himself was uh, for the longest time living with HIV, um, and after every performance, he would be in the back waiting as people would come, and he called it holding church. Mm. As people would come to him and they would just relay their hearts out to to Bianca about what they were going through. Um, and he wouldn't press them for time. He would wait. Show could have ended two hours, but there would be Bianca in the back, still in makeup, in the gown, listening to these people pour their heart out. Um, and the, just the fact that you were able to single-handedly raise over a million dollars by yourself it's so moving that oftentimes Bianca would go without. Um, there'd be times that I heard from a lifelong friend, Ron Sanford, um, who was close friends with Mark, that Bianca would approach him because she didn't have money for rent. But mm. that was because she would donate every cent that she earned. Um, and according to Ron, she did it dollar per dollar, one show at a time, and never stopped until the day she died. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Now, Veronica... You know, we have Bianca Page Day. There's, mm-hmm. there's a street, Bianca Page Way. Mm-hmm. How, is important, how important is it that younger generations of drag performers really know who Bianca Page was and her impact? Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of knowing where you come from. Uh, and I was very blessed to be friends with Mark. And, uh, and I remember when Mark was in Summit Hospital in his uh, last weeks, we took shifts and staying with Mark. Mark was never alone in that hospital room for more than five minutes, probably. And I remember being in the room one day with uh, with Mark and I believe Mark's brother and a nurse. And then it was a new nurse for the day. And she came in and there was a scrapbook on the counter kind of by the window. And she started looking through and saw all of these fundraisers and things and uh and she goes, well, you you have speaking to Mark. Oh, you have done a lot for for this town, uh, and then and then I believe it was her brother that was in her. It may have been Ron, but I think it was her brother was in her. Yeah, he's probably raised over a million dollars for for these charities uh, here in town. And and the nurse looked at Mark and said, well, you must be very proud of yourself. And Mark said, a um, million dollars is nothing compared to what the community has given me. Mm-hmm. That will stick with me forever. Um, being in the room uh, with Mark at, at at that moment, I was very blessed to have been uh, to been there, and I think to not allow new generations to be aware of the kind of person that Mark was would be a crime. That's you know that would be a crime, mm-hmm. and I think that um, dedicating a street to uh, to to Bianca in Nashville is is hardly fitting of the amazing uh, creature that she was, but we'll take it. <laughs> no, we, she, she deserves the, it, the whole interstate, as far as I'm concerned. The whole state. Now, the whole state. We just recently lost another legendary drag icon. She was best known for her portrayal of Reba McIntyre. Now, V, you knew her well. Can you tell us about her? I didn't know her very well. I've, I've worked with her a few times. Her name was Cody Collins. 
um, a.k.a. David Lohman. Um, I knew her and met her when she was working at Cowboy Lacage when it was on the corner of 2nd and 4th Avenue. Um, you know, we spoke of the jungle. The jungle was on 4th Avenue, which was two blocks down from Cowboy Lacage. So when she was at Cowboy, they would come down after their shows and come down and just sit on the pool table and watch our show. And David called me over to the table to the pool table and just said, said, you know, have a seat, let's talk for a few minutes. And just the his presence alone, you know, I, I just started working out at the jungle and things like that. And when he just pulled me to the side, I knew him as Reba, you know, Reba mm -hmm. number two, Reba's mm -hmm. twin, because he was that good at it. I took every word he said and I kept it for until now, I mean, I'm I'm tearing up now just thinking about it. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, we were talking about what Bianca did for Nashville. I also want to talk just for a second before we leave about what Veronica has done. Oh, no. <laughs> She's done things like there was a queen that lived here named Christian Page. Mm -hmm. She worked at the cabaret. She was transgender, and she was murdered. Not here in Nashville, but she was murdered, and I'm not going to go into specifics, but I just wanted you to know that Veronica was alone in the fact that she raised enough money to give Christian a headstone, and I'll never forget that as long as I live because there again, she could have just been forgotten. She could have been just one of the ones that was just shoved under the rug, but Veronica made sure that she was not, and I just want to say thank you. Mm, you're welcome. It was a pleasure to work with the Music City Sisters to um, to lay that headstone at Woodlawn Cemetery. She had been in an unmarked grave for 20 years uh, after being murdered. Mm -hmm. um, so I just felt like she deserved the um, the the dignity of of having a headstone with her chosen name. Um, and it's it's a it's there. It's there. I want to thank you all very much for joining us. That was Veronica Electronica, veteran drag queen. She was joined by Vanessa Lee, also a veteran drag queen, and MTSU history professor Philip Stefelli Sewell. Thank you all very much for this conversation. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you thank for you. having us. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Hey, by the way, I'm moderating a panel tonight at a special event presented by Nashville Public Television. We'll be talking about the mental health crisis among youth in America tonight at 6 p.m. at Hillsborough High School. And it's free. Sprinkle some free on it and you're there. RSVP at WNM. WNPT.org. This is Nashville is a production of Nashville Public Radio and WPLN News. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover, and the masterminds behind our theme music, Laurent and Namir Blade. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.